Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Well, welcome back. I'm Mallory Ortberg, and I'm glad that you have all decided to join us again for episode two of the Dear Prudence podcast. Our guest today is Jamel Bowie. But before we get talking with him, I want to talk about a letter I received recently that uh, has sparked a really, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, a hearty discussion about whose fault things are, uh, as all the best letters do, right? Because, you know, if it's not one party's fault, it has to be the others, and someone is certainly in the wrong and needs to be needs to be publicly reprimanded. I got a letter recently uh, from a couple that had been able to retire early and buy a little property out in the woods. Uh, And along with that came several acres of forest and a big old pond. And the two of them have, in the time-honored tradition of early retired couples everywhere, decided to go skinny dipping a lot in their backyard. You know, the stars, some wine, naked swimming. It's, uh, it's, 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 part of the richness of the human tapestry. And uh, obviously, when you go skinny dipping in your private woods, you are eventually going to run into peeping toms. But what's interesting about this is that the peeping toms in this situation are the children of their nearest neighbor. Um, and these children didn't just, you know, show up one evening and kind of hide behind a tree to get a peek. They secretly built a tree house hidden from view, like something that must have taken them at least a day, at least a day to construct. Like they had to get lumber, they had to get supplies, they had to get nails, they had to draw up a blueprint, I'm assuming. And they had to do this all without being seen or heard by anyone, which is pretty remarkable, um, but also horrifying if you happen to be the person this like secret nudity treehouse was built to survey. Um, So when the couple found the, you know, naughty treehouse, the husband tore it down um, and then uh, bought a lot of no trespassing signs and posted them up all over their property line. And here's where it gets interesting. Later that week, this couple's neighbor, the mother of the children who built the Peeping Tom treehouse, knocked on their door and yelled at them for being naked in their backyard. Uh, and the letter writer says, this is understandably cast a pall over what was supposed to be a wonderful nude retirement. Um, and they don't want to start a feud, but they don't know what to do. And their husband's ready to call the police if he sees those children again. And I sided with her husband, I think. I would be horrified if I find out, found out that someone had built a treehouse for the express purpose of spying on me in my own yard. Uh, but a lot of people felt like kids will be kids. And if they want to build a treehouse on your property to watch you swimming naked, that's part of a great American tradition. And you're overreacting and why you could ruin their lives if you call the police which is always such an interesting statement to me because I think there's a certain type of person who feels that experiencing consequences for your actions and ruining your life are one and the same. And to that, I would say these children started ruining their own lives when they decided to build a treehouse in secret to look at other people naked. And actually, you know what, by the way, if someone tells you that your children have secretly built a treehouse on their property in order to spy on them, if your reaction is to defend your children, I think you you need to rethink your parenting priorities. I, I hate to tell parents what to do, 
because I understand that raising children is difficult, but um, it's not my kid right or wrong. It's my kid, I'd like them to be the sort of person who's interested in getting consent before they look at people naked. Um, So, you know, to that mother, I would say maybe defend your children slightly less and love them with a slightly more critical eye. So now that we have handled nudity and treehouses and parenting all in the same question, uh, I'd like to move on entirely and talk to our next guest, Jamel Bowie, who is the senior political correspondent at Slate and would never spy on other people swimming. Hi, Jamel. Hello, Mallory. Um, I wanted to thank you for being here. And I also wanted to ask you something because you're a political correspondent and I'm very much not a political correspondent, and I wanted to keep our election discussion to a minimum. But I did want to ask you, do you think that people in general get more anxious or or news-obsessed during election years? I do. Um, I, I think people, I think election years and all the emotions, and, and when I say emotions, I mostly mean sort of fear and hope, right? Those are the two that kind of just come to the fore the most during election years really just amp up not just people who care about politics, but kind of the entire culture, since I think the United States just has an incredibly political culture, even among people who don't who aren't especially attuned to the nuts and bolts of politics. Um, it wouldn't be I wouldn't be me if I didn't make this quick reference, but you know, in democracy in Tocqueville's Democracy for America, he makes this point. Um, midway through the book that like he's like elections just kind of make Americans crazy and I don't really understand it but it's a thing you know I'm so glad I was worried that we weren't going to bring up Tocqueville so you're just (laughs) taking a real load off my mind no but that does make sense it does feel like there's a there's a spike in just ambient anxiety um, that I feel like I have noticed Um, I think this year or this past year has been probably a, a bit worse than before um, in large part because it's not just the usual kind of like, depending on who wins, like a bunch of things change or, or sort of um, at least the campaigns are arguing that depending on who, who wins, a bunch of things could change. But this year we have this like dude, Donald Trump, who really kind of seems terrifying. Um, and it's and a lot of people seem to like him, which itself is also terrifying. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that has kind of amped up a lot of people's anxiety about an election because there's like a non-trivial chance right that this um this man uh this crazy person uh could actually become president and not crazy person in that oh i disagree with this guy right politically but crazy person in that huh this guy really doesn't like democracy very much right right um, and i feel like like in the same way that voldemort accidentally created harry potter we accidentally created not Donald Trump the person, but Donald Trump the moment as a culture because we kept saying eight years ago that we were maybe going to be post-racial as a country, and that's just a morally insane thing to say. And as a result, it sort of coalesced into this, and this is what we get as a culture for having tried to make that claim. I think that's right. I think I do think the right way to read Trump is as this quasi-collective uh, response to our own delusions, sort of like taking them and saying, ha, 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 you thought you could get away from people like me, um, but you can't, uh, and everything is horribly soaked in racism, and I'm just going to prove it to you. Yeah, no, that seems 
pretty pretty accurate. So there's a specific situation I wanted to talk about with you a little bit that's both pegged to the election and also sort of timeless. Um, Bill de Blasio was speaking at a, a fundraiser for Hillary Clinton, um, and he made a joke about being late because he was operating on CPT. Um, and for yeah, anyone who's not that. familiar, you know, uh, Bill de Blasio is is white and he's married to a black woman. And the joke was about something called colored people time, um, which is sort of an old racist trope about punctuality uh, as white people experience and black people experience it. And um, I was just wondering... That's a sort of really interesting public-facing way that a white man talked about his relationship with a black woman um, and black yeah. people in general. It's it's. It, and when I say interesting, so, I mean bad. Right, Sometimes right. I say interesting, <laughs> and I just mean bad. I think it. No, was I do bad. that too. Interesting is a way to soften the blow of saying something just straight up bad. Uh, you know, it, so just as sort of like a like an ecological observation. Lots of cultures have this kind of thing, right? Sort of like I, I in college, I lived with a bunch of uh, uh, Pakistani kids, and they they had Pakistani time. Um, I knew Nigerian kids who referred to Nigerian time. Uh, it's it's kind of this it's kind of this common trope, and I don't think it's an accident that it tends to reference um, people of color uh, versus uh, people of European descent. Mm-hmm. With that said. Uh, I don't know how much there is to say about this. I, I will say that the fact that de Blasio would make this kind of joke does suggest something about his relationship with African-Americans, which is sort of like a, you know, maybe he, he feels a bit too familiar, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. Like, yeah. you know, I'm married to a black woman. My, my children are black. Therefore... I have license to make um, explicitly uh, racial jokes that may you know rely on on racist tropes, and I don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. You know, I my fiance is white. I do not feel licensed to say crazy things about white people, mm-hmm. um, or insofar that there are like racist tropes to say about white people. I don't. I don't. I don't use them. I think more a more relevant thing is she's from rural Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't make cracks about rednecks. Sure, it's inappropriate. Sure. Uh, so yeah, I just it it kind of it does kind of run counter to the kind of person I thought Bill De Blasio was. Mm-hmm. Just like not not that guy because like I've met that guy. Like right. I've, I think a lot of black people have met that guy who just get gets way too familiar mm-hmm. um, in a way that ignores the very real differences. Of power and of and the fact perception. that it took place in public, right? And the fact that it took place in public, the fact that it took place on stage with the presidential candidate, which again, I don't know what he was. I just can't get into his mind. Like I don't right. know what you're thinking when you're on stage with a presidential candidate and you make a white presidential candidate. Though if it were Barack Obama, it'd still be really weird and probably worse. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's it, it sort of made me think of because I, I think you're absolutely right. Like I don't think anyone, or I, I don't think the question is. Is is Bill De Blasio a monster or or a, a covert racist? And now we're seeing who he really is. So much as just he said a racist joke that was a misstep. Um, but you'll sometimes hear men say things like, you know, I can't be a misogynist. I have a mother, or I have a daughter, or I'm married right. to a woman. I think sometimes white people, we can do this. We'll we'll say it's okay. I have a black friend or a black partner, and therefore. My motives in this situation can't be questioned or I can't be criticized as opposed to 
that's not really a permission slip to do or say whatever you want without consequence. And it's sort of interesting to see ways in which we can make that leap and see it really fall flat. It, it's in a way sort of the idea that your um, particular relationship with a particular person that because of that person's race or gender or ethnicity would therefore license you, the person who does not belong to that group, to say whatever you want about that group right. um, in public is itself like kind of racist, right? It's sort of it's taking your particular it's taking that person's uh, characteristic of identity. And saying, well, obviously everyone else who who looks like this, um, uh, they give me their implicit license too. Right, right. Because you're not married to all those other people. You right, know, right. Bill the, de Blasio is not married to black people. <laughs> uh, so with that said, um, I think that you might have some reader questions for me. Would you care to read them out loud? I, I would be happy to read them out loud. Wonderful. Uh, thank you. So uh, here's the first one. Dear Prudence. After my husband lost his job, our family moved into the refurbished basement apartment of his parents' house, and his sister got him a job at the company she manages. It was awkward in the beginning, but I really thought that our family was getting closer together. Then I found myself unexpectedly pregnant. I thought everyone was was as excited as I was until I overheard my sister-in-law going on a tirade to her mother. Apparently, she blames me for her brother dropping out of college and says that all I can do is get pregnant instead of getting a real job. Yikes. I can't tell you how shaken I was. I took my toddler to pick up my son from preschool and hide out in the park until dark. I called my husband and he told me to come home because I was overreacting. His sister was stressed from work and just venting. His sister later texted me an apology and everyone is going on like nothing happened. She offered to throw me a baby shower, but I don't want her there. My husband keeps telling me to let it go since his sister has done so much for us and his parents that we would be homeless had his sister not stepped in to take the mortgage or given him a job. I can't. I feel so alone here. Am I being petty? Can't forget. Wow. That is just sad all around. Yes. Um, I feel like I get so many questions that sort of end with, I feel really alone. Am I selfish or petty or awful for for not being able to let go of this right away? And I always want to say, regardless of what you need to do next, you are not alone and there's nothing wrong with being sad. Um, I feel like a lot of people think I'm not allowed to be sad or I have to hurry through sadness in order to get to the next thing. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, just in my conversations with friends who may be going through something, I do think for whatever reason, I don't know if it's Americans, I don't know if it's whatever, but people do seem to feel like they can't just be sad and let that happen and mm -hmm. let that pass and let that let that process take as long as it needs to take. Well, and I also, uh, I mean, I understand why she feels like she needs to rush through sadness because that's what her husband's telling her. He's like, right, well, exactly. hurry up and get over it because she texted you an apology. So, you know, let's uh, let's get get to the baby shower. Um, which, <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, sure, she called you useless and uh, life ruiner, but she said sorry over over SMS. So I don't I, see what the problem oh, is. Man. Guys, if, if someone overhears you, saying that all you can do is get pregnant instead of a real job. You need to say an apology in person. You can't text that. That's um you text if you forget to bring dessert to a potluck. Actually, even then I think you should probably call. Um because apologies are just not textable. Texts are great for a lot of things, but heartfelt apologies about someone's worth as a human being doesn't make the list. But you know, I feel bad cuz I feel a lot of sympathy for everyone involved here. 
I, I really do. Um, I understand that the sister-in-law probably, you know, has done a lot of material good for this couple. She's she's showed up for them and been present in very significant financial and material ways, and that's not nothing. Um, that's also a horrible thing to say about somebody. I understand being stressed and wanting to vent and saying something really inappropriate to a third party that you would not say to somebody, but um, that's, that's a really terrible thing to say. Um, you know, getting accidentally pregnant is not the opposite of getting a job that's those right. two things are not at odds with one another <laughs> um and and that's just a cruel thing to say and, and you really need to you really need to make that right if someone finds out and it makes me sad that her husband's response is look don't worry about it um i feel like you know i'm always wanting to say if, if you're a couple like you need to be on each other's team first I, I don't always say that i've just thought that quietly to myself and now i have a national platform to say it <laughs> I will take advantage of the national platform. There are a lot of things I've always been meaning to say, but now I have a platform to do them. So, you know, yeah, take advantage of it. Yeah. So I feel like, huh, I feel like for this one, you know, it's really tricky, obviously, because in some ways, not in some ways, in all ways, they are currently dependent upon that sister's goodwill. Um, so it's not as if she had her own place to go to where she could sort of call and say, look, we need to talk. You know, she also needs to be careful. Um because they don't know if her sister's the kind of person who would kick them out um, if she felt like the fight had gone on too long or she wasn't getting the sort of emotional response that she was demanding. So I'm a little reluctant to tell her, look, you need to hash this out. You need to get your husband on your side and tell your sister-in-law that she can't talk about you that way. I mean, certainly now that her husband does have a job again, I think they should both be talking about moving into their own place you know, as quickly as possible. That should absolutely be a goal. But I think it's possible to acknowledge on the one hand, look, I really appreciate your generosity. And I do understand that you needed to vent. But I also want you to know that when you talked about my unborn child um, as somehow evidence of my laziness or or lack of worth or lack of contribution to this household, um, it made me feel like you don't think of me as a person and that hurt deeply. Um, and I think you can say that in a way that makes clear on the one hand, I appreciate the things you've done for me. And this was hard for me to hear. Um, and, and you know, not try to rush past it, either thing. Um, and hopefully, hopefully the sister would say, I'm really sorry. You know, if she is willing to apologize via text, hopefully she'd be willing to reiterate that she is sorry. Um, and and if nothing else, that would make things slightly less awkward between them in the hallways, that they had just spoken out loud and acknowledged, look, I heard what you said. It hurt my feelings. I think right. it's always difficult when you pretend, you know, to text, you can sort of then say, we don't ever need to talk about this in person, and we'll both just act like everything is fine. And reading between the lines of this letter, it feels like what got them to that point is no one was talking about ways in which living together was frustrating or hard or complicated. And then someone exploded, um, and now there's hurt feelings, and and the husband wants to sort of, let's all just move past it and go back to not talking about it again, and I think that's the wrong choice. I think that's right. Um, we have another letter here. I'm yeah, going to I think tackle we've it. tackled this one from every angle. Let's move on. Okay. All right. Um, this one also involves jobs. Dear Prudence, I'm currently searching for a new job after being laid off. While I'm remaining optimistic and finding lots of people in my corner who are supportive and helpful— one person in particular is proving to be quite a roadblock. He is a pillar of the community, successful, extremely well-connected, and just so happens to be my father. My dad has never been in the position of having to look for a job, and to say that he is disappointed and embarrassed by my layoff is an understatement. He has all but stopped speaking to me except to point out that he knows the president of this company or that could easily set me up with some conversations. 
As a hardworking job applicant, I muddle through his crass comments and take him up on all of these productive meetings. Everyone he sets, up with, sets me up with has been helpful in some way, although none has led to a job offer, which I don't expect. I was with him over the last holiday weekend, and as he sat glowering at me from the table, I asked if he had spoken to his friend, with whom I had recently met. Yes, he replied. He said you should stop calling him. I was shocked, since that contact had sent me an email that very day pledging to meet again and naming two more contacts, also friends with dear old dad, who could further my search at a particular company. Not knowing about this email, my dad went on to say that this guy didn't know anyone who could help me at XX company, and you need to back off. When I confronted my father with this email, he simply shrugged, catching my father in this obvious lie won't deter me from following up with his contacts, but I feel defeated by my own dad. I'm not sure if I should confront him or ignore this transgression and chalk it up to, well, I don't really know what. I wish I could rely on him for support, and I find it ironic that he is so mad I'm unemployed that he refuses to help me, thereby assuring I will stay unemployed and he will stay angry. Oh man, this one feels way darker than the last letter. This has like levels of sabotage and deceit it is you know just as sort of like a like a general point i am really fascinated by the anger people have towards the involuntarily unemployed like i I don't it's just like i don't get it i i feel like so much of it is just magical thinking which is if i've never experienced a layoff it's because i've done something right And anyone who has experienced a layoff, even though I can't point to anything because they weren't fired, you know, if I try to understand it, it could happen to me. So I need to cast blame on them. I need to assume it's because of something that's fundamentally wrong with who they are as a person. And I need to distance myself from them. And um, whenever you're dealing with that sort of magical thinking of get this contamination of unemployment away from me, you're going to do things that are sort of cruel and and subversive and unkind and um, uh, without empathy. And that's kind of what seems to be going on here. It's just crazy. Yes. So this and this is I mean, this doesn't really relate directly to the letter writer. But I will say that what's so interesting is in the 19th century, when unemployment was just a much more regular fact of life, like mm-hmm. you had persistent unemployment rates of like upwards of 25%, these kind of attitudes didn't really exist. That's interesting. I didn't know that. They only start to pop up once sort of the, the advent of like macroeconomic stabilization makes unemployment a relatively rare event for people. Yeah. And I think because a lot of unemployment can have to do with, you know, patterns and systems and, you know, your company's factory has moved overseas or there's a recession that's really out of your control because it's something a lot of people feel powerless over. They want to believe that there's ways you can avoid it. And, you know, clearly this person's father is thinking, I have to find an explanation for my child's unemployment and therefore I'm going to blame them in some way. And so I'm going to help them. But because this help is fueled by contempt, that's going to come out in a lot of different ways. So you get this really creepy behavior, which is way less explicable than the idea of saying something unkind in the heat of the moment, right? I mean, the last woman, she was venting, she was mad, she said something terrible, but you can sort of understand where she was coming from. This is just, I'm helping you with one hand, and I'm pushing you down with the other hand. I I don't think there's much directly that this person needs to do uh, with their father in terms of having it out, because clearly he's, you know, their father has made it clear if you catch him in a direct lie, he's just going to shrug it off. And I think, frankly, you know, the only thing you can do is 
uh, follow up with those contacts without him and stop using him for job leads. I mean, you, you'll be asking for more of the same treatment. You need to look elsewhere. Um, and I think that's the most important advice I could give this person is just ask former co- colleagues, former bosses, um, friends. I mean, anything would be better than this sort of weird mind games. Like, use LinkedIn. Even LinkedIn's got to be better than this. <laughs> well, you know, Jamal, I'm sorry we couldn't disagree more. Um, yeah, in future, I will look for guests whose opinions I just resent and hate so that we can have productive arguments. But thank you so much for for joining me and for talking through some of this stuff. I really appreciate it. I was happy to do so. Um, this has been a real pleasure. That was Jamel Bowie, who is the senior political correspondent at Slate. You can follow him on Twitter at at jbowie. That's at J-B-O-U-I-E. Just J-B and a whole bunch of vowels. Uh, One of the things that is very important to me is always having the ability to tell people who don't exist what to do. Uh, That's essentially why I wrote the book Text from Jane Eyre, and that's a segment that I'd like to carry on into this podcast. Um, And I've been thinking a lot about who's somebody I really want to give advice to. And lately it's been the women in a lot of 1970s folk slash soul hits, Um, particularly Maria from Take a Letter, Maria, which is a classic soul song by R.B. Greaves. Last night as I got home about a half past ten so charming and he's so vulnerable and open and he's been hurt and maybe you can fix him and I want to go on a date with him by the end of it but I really feel like Maria should put the brakes on this so take a letter Maria address it to my wife say I will be coming home here's what we're dealing with He just caught his wife cheating on him last night. He is your boss, and you are in the middle of dictation. You are on the clock. You can't ask someone out at their place of work. This is why asking out a waitress is always a bad idea, because it is her job to make you happy and bring you food. Of course you think you're in love with her. She's feeding you and smiling at your jokes. Um, But she's doing it because that's her job. So, Maria, if you're listening, which you're not because you don't exist, I'm not saying don't go out with your boss. I don't want to make a, a you know one-size-fits-all rule about dating somebody that you work with or work for, although obviously there's a pretty big power differential. I'm just saying if it really means something to him and if he really thinks that you guys would be a good fit, he'll be willing to wait until at the very least, you know, the divorce is finalized because everybody needs more time than they think they do to get over the last relationship. And if you're just a rebound and then you have to go in and take dictation in two weeks, you're going to feel uncomfortable. He's your boss. And you're sending, you know, what are you going to do? Send, you know, like go out to dinner and then, oh, I've got to get back to the office because my boss wants me to send letters to his lawyer and his wife. Well, he's your boss, you know? I mean, you can't, you're never going to be able to call in sick again, by the way, because then in his capacity as your boyfriend, he's going to want to come over and make you soup. And then if you are sick, you maybe don't want to see your boss. And if you're not sick, but you just needed a day off, now he's going to know. There's just It's just a recipe for trouble, Maria. I think you should gently let him down and let him know if in a couple of months he still wants to go out, you'll consider it. But honestly, I think you should start looking for another job. And that's my advice to you, Maria. Best of luck. 
Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Casey Miner. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. You can find all of our shows at iTunes.com backslash Panoply. Want us to answer your question? Call and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 401-371-3327. And you may hear your answer on a future episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. If you want, you can also record your question using the Voice Memo app on your phone. And you can send that to me at prudence at slate.com. We'll be back soon with more of everything. I'm sorry, he never really noticed how sweet you were to him, ever? How long have you been his secretary? At least a year, you know, based on sort of context clues. And it's taken him until now to notice your good qualities? This isn't This isn't about you, Maria. It's just you're the nearest warm body. This man doesn't know the difference between professionalism and love, and that worries me.